You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So as we prepare to dive into God's Word this morning, I was reminded of um, just an experience I had a number of years ago. Um, I began in vocational ministry as a middle school pastor and loved those years. And once you get to work with students and invest into their lives, you never lose your passion for them and to see them come to know the Lord. But at about six years after doing that, our um, community care pastor our pastoral care pastor at my previous church, he was going to retire. And he was one of these folks who had been in vocational ministry for over 50 years. I mean, this guy had seen and done everything, seemingly. And knowing that that transition was coming, they invited me to be the next person to step into his role. And so for a year, I got to mentor with this man. And I literally just followed him everywhere, into the hospital, into people's homes, as he carried out a a part of the ministry, really, that I hadn't had a lot of opportunity to be a part of as a middle school pastor. So all that being said, we saw all kinds of situations and experienced so many things together, and that was such a rich time of life for me, one of the richest I've had. And I've told you some funny stories in the past about some of the things we encountered together, but one that was really on a more serious note was this one shut-in who we would go visit every so often. His name was George Sargent, and George um, was a World War II veteran. And uh, we are losing a number of those folks now simply because they're dying and from old age, right? I mean, it's just that entire generation is, we're about to, to lose them completely. But I am a World War II guy. I love World War II history. And um, I always have looked for opportunities to just glean from those who lived that. And he was one of those. Um, he had these stories that he would tell us about what had happened during the war. But there was a part to George that, that was difficult to do business with. And it was that he was more than just kind of a crusty old guy. He, he had this bitterness that ran through him. And really this, this attitude of unforgiveness where if you wronged him, man, he kept record and he didn't forget and, um, and he held it against you. And as a result, almost all the relationships in his life were conflicted and many were broken. And that was just kind of George were these broken, strained relationships. And as we dive into this passage today, we're continuing on in this story of Joseph, which is really the last several chapters of the book of Genesis. And we've been in Genesis for several months now, and we'll finish up the book of Genesis here this next month. But that being said, we're now coming to a defining moment in this story for Joseph. Really, Joseph's story is a series of defining moments, but this is a very significant one today because we're now going to see these broken, strained relationships put on display for us between these brothers. And for those of you who may be listening online or those of you maybe who are newer to this story, maybe haven't been here in the last handful of weeks, about 20 years previously, Joseph has been sold into slavery. He's literally been abandoned by his brothers. They've literally turned their backs on him, written him off, And that's exactly what happens. He gets sold into slavery and for 20 years they have not seen him. They don't know what's happened to him. They assume that he's he's died and is long gone. And in the meantime, he's sold into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. Through a series of events, he eventually rises to prominence in the Egyptian government. He literally gets elevated, as we saw last week, to be the second in command of the entire nation. 
And now there's a crisis that's beginning to happen that Joseph predicted because God gave him the ability to interpret the dreams that talked about it. But now there is a worldwide famine that is taking place. And we know historically this really did happen because the Bible is a historical document. The events it describes are not fairy tales or fables. They really did happen in human history. And this famine really did take place. And it was a big deal because Egypt, the Nile River, that area in particular, is the breadbasket of the Fertile Crescent, of that part of the world. And for there to be a worldwide famine, basically everyone would need to come to Egypt in order to survive and to get through it. Because that was the only place when there was a worldwide drought, at least of the known world at that time, where there was water and where there was the ability to grow crops. And so now there's this incredibly significant dire famine, this crisis that is now going to bring Joseph's brothers face to face with him. They have not seen him for 20 years and they're not gonna know it's him. And it is gonna become a defining moment in their relationship together. And we're going to enter this story together and see that in this very reluctant reunion between all of them, that there's incredible hope for conflicted, broken relationships, even the most difficult of relationships, and we'll get to see that happen right in front of us in this story. So if you have a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 42, take out your tablet or phone and get there if that's how you get there, and we're going to pick up our story where we left off last week. Joseph has been elevated to this place of power, and now this famine is taking place. So when Jacob, their dad, learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. And the irony with indecision is that ultimately indecision is a decision. If you can't make up your mind to do something, you're eventually actually making a decision. You're taking no action. And evidently that's what, for whatever reason, was going on with these brothers. They're they're basically doing nothing to steer into this crisis that is, is... overtaking everyone, including their family. And so Jacob kind of takes them to task and says, you guys, let's do something about this. Go get us some food. I mean, this really was dire. And so now they're gonna embark on a 400-mile journey to go to Egypt. This wasn't just a couple days. This was several weeks, possibly a month or two, for them to go and to try to get help. But that's what they do. So the 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. And and there's lots swimming around in this. Number one, uh, Benjamin isn't a little kid. 20 years has elapsed since Joseph was sold into slavery. So we know reasonably, doing a little math here, that Benjamin's a 20-something. He's in his mid-20s. And in that culture, in that day and age, he would have long been considered an independent adult. And yet his dad forbids him to go with his brothers because he doesn't quite trust them. Because the last time the brothers went on a journey of this significance, Joseph didn't come back. And he still holds them responsible for that. Now we know that Jacob does not know that they sold him into slavery. They lied to him, if you'll remember, at the time, 20 years previous to this, and said that he had been devoured by some wild animal. But Jacob knows enough to know that he can't trust Joseph's brothers. At least he doesn't fully, so he's not gonna send Benjamin with him. 
So Israel's sons, that's another name for Jacob, were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Does this sound like something we were told to expect? We'll come back to that. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. Where'd you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, this is really key, they did not recognize him. And actually, that's reasonable. It's been 20 years since they've seen him. He is now Egyptianized. He's wearing Egyptian clothes. He speaks Egyptian. His head has been shaved. He's changed a lot in 20 years, and he's been enculturated by this foreign country. And so, of course, they don't recognize him. But then we're told this. Then he, Joseph, remembered his dreams about them. And now we're going to go back to what we alluded to just a little earlier. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 37, some weeks back for us when we were in this passage. And this is really how the story began to start that we're in. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Does that sound familiar? His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over this? Now, we can easily relate to this. Can you imagine the youngest in your family saying this to the older siblings? My sisters would flog me on the spot if I would have said this as the little brother. I have five sisters. I'm the only, I'm the only sane one. I'm the only boy. Uh, just kidding. They would have had a heyday if I would have said this to them. But like all the dreams we've seen take place in this story, every single one of them comes true. Because they're predictive. Because they're prophetic. And now we see this dream becoming a reality. What are all the brothers doing to Joseph? Even though they don't recognize him, they are bowing to him. Because they need his help. And so back to our story. He says to them, you're spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Now that's ironic. Really? Can we define honest together? But that's what they say. So he says, no. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. And ironically, the one who's no more is standing right there in front of them. Joseph said to them, it's just as I told you, your spies, third time he's accused them of that. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall of that prison cell and to heard the conversations that were going on for three days. And at this point, as our story develops, it kind of begins to feel like 
that he's toying with them. But is he toying with them or is he testing them? Maybe it's a little of both. But the story goes on. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. And he's about to lay out the terms of what he's asking them to do. But this is hugely important. Egyptians were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. They worshiped many gods. Here Joseph is saying, I worship the one true God. This is an unmistakable statement in Hebrew culture that I'm a Yahweh worshiper. He does not use the the name, the personal name for God, Yahweh. He uses a more general name for a, a God, the big God, but he makes it clear that he is a God worshiper and they miss it. He drops this hint for them and they're not gonna see it. So he goes on to say, this is what you gotta do. If you're honest, man, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. And I want you to watch with me now the progression that is about to take place in the lives of the brothers. This is the first time in the story we see them feel any guilt, any remorse for what they did to Joseph 20 years earlier. This, this is significant. There is some change that's beginning to take place. Reuben, who was the oldest, replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. And now we must give an accounting for his blood. And they did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. There's so many layers swimming around in this story. Every every couple verses we read, there's stuff there. They don't think he understands Hebrew. And he is using an interpreter. So they have no idea. He hears everything they're saying and he understands it. Boy, does he understand it. But he's learning something here, Joseph is, that evidently he did not know. Because you and I know from the story in Genesis 37 that when they chose to throw Joseph into that pit and then sell him into slavery, Reuben was not a part of that. Remember it says he came back. For some reason, he had left all of them. When they cooked this up, when they came up with this, and when they actually did it, Reuben wasn't there for that part of it, the actual carrying out of the plan. This is the first time Joseph Pierce, his oldest brother, wasn't complicit in what happened to him. And we're gonna see how that plays out. He turned away from them and he begins to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. And we can can totally get and understand the conflicting emotions Joseph must have felt here. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. And now we don't know this for sure, but could it be that he did not keep Reuben in prison because of what he just learned, that his oldest brother was not complicit in what happened to him? And so now he takes the second oldest. Simeon Simeon was the second oldest among the brothers and he's the one who has to stay in prison. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. And after this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and they left. Joseph actually gives them more than what they asked for. They were just asking for grain. He not only gives that to them, he gives them their money back unknowing, unbeknownst to them, and he gives them provisions for their journey on the way home. What is going on here? 
So at the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. And their hearts sank. And they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that who has done to them? What is this that God has done to us? And when they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to him. And once again, we see some spiritual progression taking place here. This is the first time they acknowledge they've done something wrong before God. And it says they came to Jacob and they told him everything that had happened. And that is significant too because this was part of the test that Joseph was giving them. The last time they came home without one of their brothers, what did they do? They lied. And now they're coming home once again without one of their brothers. These guys don't have a real great track record when they all go somewhere, right? (laughs) Someone fails to come back. But I think this is significant. We don't have time to work through the verses that follow this, but they are basically a rehash of what you and I have just looked at together. They actually tell the truth. They actually tell their dad exactly what happened in Egypt. Now, understand, they're still in process. They haven't completely, quote, unquote, come clean because they haven't owned at all what's happened with Joseph with their dad. He still thinks he was devoured by a wild animal and they presented themselves in the most favorable light possible when they were explaining to Egypt that, to uh, Joseph that there was one who was no more. Well, why is he no more? They didn't go into that detail. But there's something going on here. So as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. Now they're doing this in front of dad. And when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. This is a cry of absolute despair. And notice whose fault it is that his children aren't there, that Joseph is gone. He blames the brothers. This is your fault. Then Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. This is a profoundly courageous, maybe not wise, but courageous statement that Reuben is making. He's trying to guarantee the safety of Benjamin. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Now this is revealing too. He's the only one left? I thought there were still nine brothers left. Jacob is still playing favorites in the family. Benjamin is the final son who is left, who was given to him by his favorite wife, Rachel. there's still deep dysfunction going on in this, in this family. And what he says here is astounding. He basically says, if anything happens to Benjamin, I am going to spiral into an unrecoverable depression and I'm gonna die a premature death and it will be your fault. Wow. So let's step back for a minute. Obviously, these are conflicted, hurting broken relationships in this family. 
And yet there is incredible hope and there's something incredible that's happening in this story that we're looking at here, this portion of it. For starters, it shows us that for there to be true healing in any kind of broken relationship, there has to be repentance. And let's unpack this here for just a minute. We reasonably ask the question, is Joseph toying with them or is he testing them? And I honestly believe it's the latter. They said they were honest men. And so he's taken that for a test drive because they don't have a track record of being honest men. He's been at the receiving end of that. So they say they're honest. Okay. So he gives them the opportunity to do so. But the way he does this is not linear. There's a lot of layers to this. But I think he truly is testing their hearts. And just so we're on the same page, repentance means changing your heart and your mind and turning away from your brokenness and choosing to turn towards God. It is a one-time thing and it is an ongoing thing that we're called to do in our brokenness. And I think God is using the circumstances of Joseph being in this place to literally be able to save the family, but also to reconcile and bring the family back together. I think God's using this as a repentance process. Because look at the progression of what's going on here. For the first time, we're told they own their guilt. Man, I can't believe we did what we did to Joseph. The last picture we had of these brothers was they were counting their money from selling him and pretty pleased with themselves. For the first time, we see them acknowledge they've not only wronged Joseph, they've wronged God himself, which they did. And if that's not enough, we see them actually tell the truth. Maybe not the whole truth. They didn't own the past with Joseph, but they certainly told the truth to their dad of what happened in Egypt. They could have very easily done what they did with Joseph and said, yeah, Simeon, he spouted off to the guy in charge and he's in prison, he's never coming back. Wasn't our fault. But they didn't do that. They actually told the truth. So there's a progression here of repentance that's taking place. And we see bad examples insincere examples of repentance all the time in our culture. Repentance isn't saying you're sorry and then expecting things to be okay. Repentance isn't saying you're sorry and then doing it again. You know, we see this over and over again. This, this truly is a, a process of repentance that's beginning to take place because forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness isn't always linear. And I think that's what's going on here too. This is kind of complicated. How would you feel if you were Joseph, and this had happened to you 20 years previously, and now you are in a position of absolute power and authority, and now these brothers appear before you, and the last time you were with them, they were ignoring your cries for mercy. And they were laughing about the money they were gonna make by selling you off and turning their backs on you and discarding you and now you lose everything. How would you feel 20 years later if they appeared in front of you and you had the ability at a word to take their lives and no one would question you? What would you do? Wow. And yet Joseph very deliberately begins to work a process of forgiveness with them. We see the conflicting emotions. He turns away to cry. We'll see more of that as we get into next week as he's trying himself to figure all this out. 
But at the same time, to his credit, I think he's not just settling for forgiveness with them. I really do think he's pursuing reconciliation with them as well. And the two are very different. And the two are very much the heart of God for all of us in our relationships. You see, forgiveness takes one person. It takes you. Someone wrongs you, you can choose to forgive them. But reconciliation takes two people. You have to be willing to heal the relationship, but so does the other person. You don't have control over someone else. And sometimes you can want reconciliation and the other person or party doesn't. And that's where it can begin to get complicated. As a pastor, I've stepped into innumerable situations where someone has been, by way of example, in an abusive relationship and they eventually can and work through the very difficult process of forgiving the abuser, but there can't be reconciliation because that person doesn't want it or because that person refuses to repent. And why would they put themselves in harm's way again? And again, there is no um, answer that fits every situation. That's why this can be complicated and that's why we have to work forgiveness and reconciliation in community. So it can be tested against wisdom and, and wise counsel and prayer and the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit and God's word, but there's a lot to this. But can we just steer into what's really at the heart of this? What if you don't want to forgive somebody? Or what if they don't deserve it? Because here's the reality for you and me. We live in a broken world and we are broken people. And if you are not in the position right now to be forced to do business with forgiveness, you will be at some point. And the unfortunate reality is you may be deeply hurt and wronged by your very own family, which is what we see happening in this story. So... Do they deserve your forgiveness? Does the person who wrongs you deserve your forgiveness? No. Because you don't deserve forgiveness. And I don't deserve forgiveness. In fact, does anybody deserve forgiveness? And the answer is no. No one deserves it. So why do it? Because Jesus has forgiven us even though we don't deserve forgiveness. In fact, the reality is, if you want to live out this relationship with God, if you want to know God, if you want to be in right relationship with him and right relationship with other people, and you're wondering what that looks like, it's always a response, listen very carefully here, to what God has done for you. God tells us to love other people who are unloving, undeserving, unlovable. He tells us to love them anyway because... He first loved us. God calls us to forgive undeserving people because he has forgiven us and we're undeserving. The gospel is always a response to you and me living out what God has done for us. And this is captured in all over the Bible. It's the story of the Bible. But in the New Testament in Colossians, this is one of my most favorite passages. It says this, bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive. Why? As the Lord forgave you. You can do this.
even when you don't feel like it, and honestly, even when you don't want to. Because it's what God has done for you. The Bible is not a collection of stories about morals. The Bible is a, a, an incredible story over and over again about a God who comes to undeserving, broken, selfish, self-focused people and rescues them from that because he gives them his grace. He gives them what they don't deserve. He gives them his mercy. He doesn't give them what they do deserve because he loves them. Folks, we are the only major worldview, we are the only world religion that practices forgiveness. That's our side of the street. It is a distinctive of being a Jesus follower. And man, is it hard at times. Talk about heavy lifting. But so worth it. Because God is faithful. This is about a faithful God. Over and over again, we see this God keeping his promises everybody's having these predictive dreams and they all come true, every single one of them. He always does what he says he will do. Forgiven people are the only ones I would submit to you who know how and can forgive others. You can do this and so can I. Let's come back to George. We started with George, we're gonna end with George and I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward as we do. So over the years, and it was literally years, of spending time with George Sargent, this crusty, hardened, bitter World War II veteran, we began to get to what was at the heart of what was going on in him. George would tell these stories about what had happened to him in the war, but finally there was this one story that was so deeply personal, so deeply painful, that over time he entrusted my mentor and I with it. He was in a foxhole on one of the Pacific Islands and in that foxhole jumped a Japanese soldier. And it was him or that guy. Now I've never experienced this. I hope I I never have to. I've been told by veterans, it's one thing when you kill someone from a distance, it's another when you look them in the eye and it's you or them. And so he took this man's life and he could never forgive himself because of it. And so all those years, he had wrestled with and struggled with the guilt over what had happened and where he had been put. Been put. And I'll never forget the defining moment. Unfortunately, I didn't get to be there, but I, I heard about it after the fact. My mentor was there. But I'd been a part of a number of these conversations where my mentor and George were working through 1 John 1, 9 in the New Testament, which declares what is declared throughout God's word, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there was a defining moment where that moved from an idea and a principle and a value to reality for George Sargent, where he said, you know what? God has forgiven me and therefore I can forgive myself. And it changed his entire life. I got a call from his son who was a Jesus follower about a week after this happened and he said, where did you put my dad? I don't know this guy. He is absolutely changed and transformed. 
And one by one, George was able to forgive every single one of those painful, broken situations in the relationships that he had at that point. Because for the first time he understood that he was forgiven and therefore he could forgive himself and he could forgive other people. But this is not always a linear process. It's not in this story and oftentimes it's not in your life and mine. And so I've asked Sarah as we prepare to to worship and respond to what we've heard here to share some of her story as she has, has worked through the reality of that. About 15 years ago when I was in college, I had a roommate that wronged me. It hurt me pretty bad. Uh, We parted ways and we never actually saw each other again. Because she didn't ask for my forgiveness, I felt as though I didn't need to give it. But years after that, it burdened me that it was hard for me to forgive even the littlest things to people in my family, my close friends. It burned my soul to not forgive this one person who in my mind didn't deserve it. I would have given it to her if she would have asked, but she didn't even want it. It was taking a toll on my health. I was so stressed because it was leading to other parts of my life that one day I just fell prostrate on the ground and asked God, I cannot forgive this person, so I need you to do it for me. I prayed that a couple times, and when I got up, just this burden had been lifted off my shoulders. I'm not sure the work that God did, but I know that I was free from that. He's faithful and good in that way for not only taking that from me, but also reminding me, being compassionate towards me, and helping me to forgive every single day. I still struggle a little bit with forgiving. So this sermon was for me. Thanks, Jay. (laughs) But as we continue in worship through music, we get to sing about a good God. And even in this circumstance for me, as I'm reminded of this, not only was God good because he listened to my prayer and he answered, releasing that burden from me, but he's faithful to continue to forgive me when I was unable to forgive. Because that was a lesson that day that I realized how much I really hadn't forgiven myself for many of the things that I had done but he was listening and he was there. And that's why today I can sing that God, you are so good. You are so good to me. Amen. You get it. And I'm glad you do. We have our prayer teams off to the side. Discovering God together, growing in God together, working through the process of forgiveness and reconciliation, it's something we do in community. We want to encourage you. If there's any way we can pray for you, please please take advantage of that. I just want to leave you with a couple things. The first is on the back of your sermon notes. We have uh, made this available in the past. This is something that's been developed by our Gary Brashears, but it really walks through 
the forgiveness and reconciliation process. It's very practical. It's very applicable. I'm sure we opened some cans of worms this morning that we did not close. This will help help do that for sure. Um, I, I worked through a forgiveness and reconciliation process with someone this week, and this was in the back of my mind as we did the, the heavy lifting together. And that's what this is. This is hard stuff. It can be profoundly difficult to do. But this is the path to hope and healing and forgiveness and and life. And that's why we do it. And I'd like to leave you with these words once again from Colossians. I'd like to give you a little more uh, of what we had read earlier. This is Colossians 3, 12 through 13. It says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, you are chosen, you are holy, and you are dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I want to pray his blessing over us as we go from here and live that out now. Jesus, we thank you that you are the God who gives grace and mercy and forgiveness to the undeserving. Lord, that's why we can do that because you have done that for each one of us. So as we go from here through the power of your spirit, would you give us the opportunity this week to tell someone about you, to be the people that you have called us to be. And God, thank you that we can do this. You give us the power and the ability through your spirit and through our trust and obedience to live this life you call us to. So help us to go do it now. And we thank you that you are here with us and that you go with us in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. So we hope to see you next week. Go and live for him. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.